Once again, I'm joined in studio with Matt Flynn. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for joining me again. Thanks for having me again. We thought it'd be fun to kind of do a kind of get to know your host episode, I think, maybe a little bit. And uh, this will be actually for both for us to get to know each other a little better, yeah. as well as uh, our listeners uh, to get to know us a little bit. We decided to get like five films that we consider like our, five of our favorite films. Uh, we're, we're able to actually say that these are your top five favorites, or are these just five films you like a lot? <laughs> um, a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, this was not an easy list to do. I mean, once once you let me know that this is what we're going to do, I just immediately ran to my collection of movies. I started just searching for movies I didn't necessarily own, but absolutely love. I wrote down probably a list of like 30 some odd movies. So to <laughs> knock that down to, to five, uh, I don't like you right now. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard. I did I did the same thing. I opened up my DVD collection. Yeah. I'm like just going through it and I'm thinking, what will, what films do I like to watch more than, you know, or I pull out once a year or every now and again or that I'll always pop into my head and right. yeah, and then just narrow it down. So yeah, these may be considered my top five, but then I have like probably a tie for sixth place with about 20, 25 other films. <laughs> I have a long list of honorable mentions with me. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and what you just said about, you know, it's a movie that you can always pull out. I feel like kind of to define what makes a favorite is, is that movie that it doesn't matter how much time's gone by, you'll watch it again. doesn't matter how many times you've seen it. You know, it's still kind of fresh because you're going to see something new. And as you grow and become a different person, you've noticed something different. Um, but then at the same time, I feel a, a top five list. This might be my top five list today. Right. It might not be my top five list next week. That a favorite, favorite should almost be fluid and constantly changing. So whatever I say today might not even be true in a week, a month, a year, whatever. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe a new favorite is a film I haven't seen yet. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and um, get started a little bit. Did you have – was it – no, never mind. That was kind of just what I would. I was gonna say, what was your? Um, How did you come up with it? But I guess we we just we just talked about that. So <laughs> never mind. So let's go. Uh, go ahead and uh, give me your your first uh, your first choice there. Well, I'm gonna go backwards. I'm gonna start from five and work it down to one. All right. I I will actually I'll, I will say that these are maybe not in any order for okay. me. Yeah. I just I I don't know if I could honestly put them except for one. There's one film that will always be my number one and we'll, we'll get to it but okay uh and again i'm gonna say this wasn't easy <laughs> i've had to knock off so many movies that i absolutely love um and i was even surprised when i put this list together i was like wow i had to cross that one out didn't think i'd do it so number five um 12 angry men that's on my list too is it really yes. <laughs> oh my gosh that is awesome yeah 1957 yes right? yes yeah um i only first saw it maybe Five years ago, it was part of a, um, a sociology class, and we only got to see half of it. Mm. And, and the plan was to come back the next week and finish it. I went home and finished it. <laughs> I went and found it on YouTube and just watched the rest of it because I couldn't wait. I mean, I was just completely pulled in um, from just everything. It's amazing how it's 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 two scene it's two sets it's mm-hmm. it's the room where they're in. Um, trying to come up with their verdict, and then it's the bathroom, and the bathroom's only like six one minutes. Scene, yeah. yeah, so it's mostly in that one room, and 
yet they find so many interesting angles just looking down the table kind of like a more upward shot Mm -hmm. corners of the room you didn't even notice there were chairs on the side because you're so focused on the men at the table until they sit at the chair and then you can't look away um the 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 close-up shots to really get their facial expressions there's just so much going on Mm -hmm. in a short amount of time that you feel like you have learned who all of these people are and like how they represent kind of all facets of humanity in terms of of anger and compassion and confusion and i just want to get out of here and things like that and you relate to each and every one of them good bad and ugly Mm -hmm. um just for anyone who may not have actually may not have seen 12 angry men like we said this was 1957 it starred henry fonda and then a cast of just phenomenal actors including uh lee j cobb e.g marshall uh jack klugman and a bunch of others that if you have watched any film through the 50s and 60s, you've seen these actors. I mean, it is kind of like who's who kind of thing. A uh, brief synopsis that I just pulled from uh, probably IMDb. that A jury holdout attempts to prevent a miscarriage of justice by forcing his colleagues to reconsider the evidence. And that is really... I guess that's a good description in a nutshell, but that doesn't even come close yeah, to like, what... It's like a crude nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It is, uh, for me, like I said, this is on my list too. Uh, This was a film, and it may be the first film that I saw that, maybe prior to that, I watched a lot of movies. This is the first thing I said, this is a film. It it was like, it was a different type of art form. Uh, It was the first time that I saw a movie that told me, that there was different ways to tell a story. That the fact that you could do it in one room and just have a group of people and it keeps your attention. I think it was probably just flipping around on TV or something and came into it halfway or maybe who knows how far in and just suddenly just stuck. Yeah. And I had to finish. And then later on went and found it on video, you know, back in the VHS days, rented it from the Blockbuster or something. Very and then, old thing to say. Yeah, I know. <laughs> And then uh, watch the whole thing through, and it just amazes me. And like you were saying, I mean, there's always something going wrong. Even though this is just one set, it's, a, it's like a one-act play kind of yeah. thing. But in the background, you've got your characters, whoever's having the conversation, whoever's in the scene. But in the background, it's never static. No one looks like they're looking for something to do. Everybody has their roles to play, even when they're not part of the scene. And it's just... It's just a phenomenal piece of film work. I, and I think films have tried to do that again. I don't know if any of them have come as close. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also one of those movies that I keep hearing, oh, they might remake it. And I just keep thinking, don't, don't, don't even touch this movie. And, and people talk about like, oh, well, you know, if it was a jury now, you couldn't have it as all men unless you set it back in time. And it's like, well, why would you do that? Because there it is. And it's it's flawless you shouldn't touch it and it it is very much like um a one-act play but even in a play when you've got certain person like giving their monologue other actors kind of fade into the background and just kind of do background acting this never happens everybody has something like somebody's doing something where you like you see him doodling and then you find out that's important because then he calls somebody out on their doodling and he's like do you you know are you bored like we're talking about something important here and so every last little thing that goes on plays into these guys stuck in this room until they come up with a verdict i have actually seen i i watched a remake that starred jack lemon he did it it must have been in the 80s or 
I don't know if it was in the '90s. Maybe could it could have been in the '90s. I didn't know there was a remake. It was a remake. I think it was um, probably a direct-to-video kind of thing. Okay. I don't think it ever saw any uh, any film, uh, you know, theater time or anything. And it was like you were saying, it was updated. Obviously, the the jury was still all men, but there was uh, an African American. Uh, there was, you know different stripes of folks you know in the jury and i'm not going to say it wasn't good but jack lemon's not henry fonda jack lemon's great yeah but he wasn't henry fonda right and i think that would be the problem with remaking it is you'll always be measured up to that and how can you top the peak you know it's not to say he's the greatest actor ever but in that moment like there's just no higher than that I think that basically the you know the story obviously was was pretty much the same and everything and maybe if it was the first one that I had, that I had saw, then I would probably maybe still be as amazed with right. it because it's still the same story. It's still this one person that is trying to like say, look, there's doubt. You have just because this kid is on from the wrong side of the track, you can't just throw his life away. It's right. worth something. We have to look into this. I mean, it's the same story. It's important. It's just as important today as it was in 1957 or 1990 or whenever this remake was made. And it's a fantastic, phenomenal film. And yeah, definitely seek that one out if you haven't already seen it. Absolutely. I'll go ahead and pull one off my list, even though you know, that was kind of covers one of mine. Um, I will throw in this one. This is it's a fun film. This is a film that I, the family and I have watched a couple times. It's kind of come into sort of be like sort of a uh, a fall tradition, especially around Halloween. We look at uh, 1948's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs> I just I'm a big Abbott and Costello fan. I just I think they were probably just one of the best comedic duos that has ever existed. Yeah. Um, the the level of slapstick and uh, wordplay and just timing between the two, I just absolutely love. And then I'm a classic Monsters fan, and so here's this film with Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr. and the uh, Frankenstein's monster, this time with uh, Glenn Strange as as the monster, and they're all together in this film. It's 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 just this perfect melding <laughs> of right. so many things that I love. And it is just, it's a fun and enjoyable, and like I said, I showed, I showed it to my son, I think the first time he was nine, you know, and he, and he loved it. And the next year he watched it again when he was 10, and he still enjoyed it. It's just, it's that fun and just enjoyable of a film. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. That's on a very long list I have of movies <laughs> I need to get to, but I have seen some of their other work. I've seen their, their sketches, and yeah, just as comedians, they're brilliant. And to add to everything you said, their facial expressions, the way they just give each other looks or look at the camera or look to the side and roll their eyes and things like that, it's just it's brilliant. I mean, my favorite sketch of theirs is the one with the diamond necklace, and they, they have it in the hamburger, and they keep, you know, it's just this classic of look over there, and then we switch. But it goes on for so long that you're like, this is ridiculous, but it keeps getting funnier. And then it doesn't end with that. It ends with him biting the hamburger, and and then the cop comes by and says, if you've seen it, there's a reward. <laughs> and I love to, with sketches particularly like that one, where you think, my gosh, this is taking forever, whatever. That's usually about the time where Costello will he'll do it and he'll they'll look at the camera. Yeah. He looks at the audience. He breaks at the fourth wall. Yeah. Like, all right, now we're in on it too. Mm-hmm. And I, that's one of the things that I love about them. Watching their actual live performances uh, when you, they do their um, if you catch any, they're on, a lot of them are on YouTube. If you catch any of their uh, the, the live 
television programs that they did, a few that were recorded. That is hysterical, especially when things go wrong. Right. You know, someone will bust through the door and it'll break a prop, <laughs> and then they realize that that they need that prop later in the skit, and they have to they have to like, okay, just hang on a second, and someone has to come and bring in a new one, and oh, it, it's just hysterical because they just keep going and they right. laugh. They they have so much fun together. They're having a great time. Right, and I think it's those moments uh, where they can just work it in. They're like, you know what, things just went wrong. Don't stop. Just make it part of the funny, and it's it's things that people love about a live performance. It's why people still kind of enjoy Saturday Night Live. Of something could go wrong because there's no cut to save you, and it's almost those moments that you like more. Those those are the the sketches that you think about the most. Of they just screwed up, and it was funnier than if they didn't. Uh, Ebba and Costello meet Frankenstein was. It was kind of a, uh, a Hail Mary by Universal because the Abbott and Costello films were starting to wane a little bit. Uh, the Universal monster films had waned a little bit. And so they thought, well, let's just throw them together and see what happens. And it ended up pretty much sparking a, um, a, a resurgence to both of them. And they ended up doing a bunch of films uh, with the, the monster and the Abbott and Costello mashups. And they did a bunch, and they were all extremely popular. And then, again, they those started to wane a little bit, too. And they, you know, fortunately, they, they stopped before they really got ridiculous. But it, it was just that perfect, you know, lightning in a bottle moment kind of thing. Uh, so it's just, it's one of my favorites. I love it. Cool. I'm, I'm probably going to have to check that out now. Um, all right. So my next one um, originally was not on my list until I was going over my list and talking about it. Originally in this spot, I had um, the Aladdin movie, the Disney Aladdin movie with Robin Williams. Um, That's still my favorite Disney movie. Um, And it was on there because I was like, I really want to represent like an animated movie, but I don't want to force anything. And then all of a sudden, click. I was like, Aladdin has to come off in favor of Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Oh, that is a phenomenal Batman movie. Yes, I to me that's still the gold standard of a Batman movie, of a superhero movie, and of in general a great movie. Um my favorite for people who don't know, um it's um it's based off of the 90s um Batman animated series. Um Kevin Conroy is Batman, everyone knows Mark Hamill is the Joker, and it tells a somewhat origin story to Batman, not not the whole his parents died, but what Bruce did to become Batman and, and, and the years he spent training and the failures he had that first night out where he was just in kind of like just a general ski mask. Yeah, ski ma- yeah kind of like a, a cheap ninja outfit and his first night, you know, he was successful, but he kind of got beaten up and he thought like, I can't go out every night like that. I'll die in a week. Like I have to scare them. And he was trying to figure it out, but it was also telling the story of how he was falling in love with this woman. And he was starting to feel for the first time in his life since he was a kid, some sense of hope and positivity and love and, and that there could be a good future. And he realized I don't have the drive to go out there and partake in this crusade that I've created. And my favorite scene is where he realizes that. So he runs to the, to the grave of his parents and he's, you never hear his parents talk, but the way they have him pause 
It's as though he thinks he's talking to them and he's asking for their forgiveness. Like, I don't think I can keep the promise I kept. Tell me it's okay. Is it okay? And it's raining and there's thunder and there's lightning and he's just looking up and it's just really dark. And, and you can just, even though it's a drawing, but with the combination of how they drew it and the music that they did and the atmosphere they created and the brilliant work of Kevin Conroy, you see the, the pain on Bruce's face of, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm supposed to do this. And that conflict. And it was a, a few, a couple months ago when it was after the mixed reviews of, of Batman v Superman. And they started on the justice league movie. Deborah Snyder came out and her quote was something along the lines of, um, we realize that fans don't want to see these characters deconstructed. And I couldn't disagree with that more because this movie deconstructs him wonderfully. And that's why to me, it's still the best movie interpretation of Batman because they break him down and they show you that pain behind him, that drive behind him, the conflict. And then something happens and he's able to continue on and become Batman. And it makes him even more tragic. No, that is. I don't have any animated on my list. I, I probably should have tried to think of one. <laughs> and if I did, I probably probably would. That would be one of them, uh, or, or certainly might be the one. Yeah, that is a film. I saw it in the theater, and yeah, I was a fan of the animated series, and so oh, they're going to put out this movie. Okay, we'll go see it. Yeah, blown away. I mean, you you sat in the theater and it, it's over, and you're like, your mouth is agape. You're like, holy crap! <laughs> and then you wonder. You see these poor examples of the Batman films as they go on, you know, with the uh, you know Batman and Robin, and then the Batman whatevers, and you're like, and why aren't they telling these? Where are these writers <laughs> that that they have in their animated? Why aren't they here? Yeah, Phantasm. You know, you're describing that scene. That's one of those scenes in that film that always just sticks in my head. For some reason, it's always just in the back of my head is that that, that graveyard scene. Like you said, it's raining and, and he's talking to them. And he's like, it it just doesn't hurt as much anymore. He's like, I, I can give more money to the police. I mean, they can do it. Yeah, Just tell me it's okay. It's That scene is <laughs> it's just in my head. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic because that's the scene where you could easily go, okay, alternate universe, that's it. He stops. You know, right. no, Batman doesn't exist. Uh, wow. I mean, that is a, it's an amazing little turning point of, of that character. Yeah. And then the other scene I really like is after the woman he's fallen in love with has left, um, it immediately cuts to him in the Batcave and he's shooting up for the very first time. And it's just a silhouette shot. And you see he's in the shadow, and you see Alfred in the light, and Alfred's just sort of standing there, kind of not impressed, and he's putting on the belt, and he's already got the cape on, and he puts his hand out, and Alfred hands him the mask, and he puts it on, and he turns, and he steps into the light, and he, they do the classic eye squint, and Alfred is terrified, and he goes, my word, and he steps back, and he's like, this is not the boy I raised. This is not the man I know. This is someone terrifying who I don't recognize anymore. Even, like, for all intents, it's his, it's his father. Alfred is right. his father, and he can't recognize him. And he's terrified. And it's like, that's Batman. And I, no one's really ever touched on that. No one's ever shown 90% of what Batman does is through intimidation. And it's not about how good a fighter he is or the gadgets he has or how cool the Batmobile is. Even all that stuff is a lot of fun. 
fear is how he gets the job done. And that's what he realized on that night where he was kind of really not successful. He's like, I've got to scare the guys. Like, half of them have to drop their guns. The other half have to be shaking in their boots. And then I can win the day. And, yeah, no movie has really shown that outside of Mask of the Phantasm. I think what's amazing is that it's – that may be one of the first animated films that I saw that had the best – best relationships uh developed relationships between the characters you had bruce falling in love and it was actually you felt like you were watching bruce fall in love um the the relationship between him and alfred was probably never better realized than in that film Uh, towards the end there's another scene with alfred who is telling bruce that you know you walk along you know this chasm you know this this darkness all the time, and I you know I f- always fear that you're going to fall in. And he talks about the the, the woman without giving too much away. Uh, you know she fell in long ago, and you couldn't have saved her. And that's, that's another great scene. It kind of with that little bit, you see just how much Alfred loves this kid. Yeah. And yeah, and the, that transformation. See, I've forgotten about that oh, one I, a little I, bit. I that is a fantastic. <laughs> I love it because we know what Batman looks like. We know what he's going to look like. So he's just he's always Batman, you know, you know whatever. But the, with you don't see it, but Alfred sees it. And when you see that Alfred has li- literally watched one person change from someone else into this a monster, a monster, uh, it's fantastic. It's a very good choice. That's yeah. thank you. Awesome. Well, next one I'm going to bring up on my list is a film that was probably introduced to me by my father, who was a little bit of a science fiction nut. And this was probably come on TV, and he's like, oh, you should watch this. And we and we turned it on. It was a 1960s The Time Machine. Okay. And it was a George Powell production. Um, a man's vision for a utopian society is disillusioned when traveling forward into time... Uh, into time reveals a dark and dangerous society. I don't think that's a very tip, very good description. That's what you get if you go to IMDb. But um, it starred uh, Rod Taylor and uh, Alan Young and Yvette Yvette Minou, very very young and beautiful. Um, but Rod plays George, a, a man. He's you know it's the turn of the of, of the century, and he's been a little disgusted at the human race. You know this, which is something I think a lot of us can <laughs> can relate to, because of all the war and the killing. He invents a time machine and goes forward in time, hoping that eventually the human race will find a way to get over itself. And uh, being a George Power production means big budget, colorful, uh, brilliant spe- Academy Award winning special effects, actually. And it's just it's just a fun story. It's got a little bit of everything. I think it's a fun action story. There's you know, a little social commentary. And again, relationships. The relationship between George and his friend Philby, played by Alan Young, is just phenomenal. The The scenes they have together, you really feel for these two people as they um, as Philby's trying to convince them that if he's really invented that, then he needs to destroy it because this will, this, could, this will be your downfall. But in the end, when he knows that George did go off, he maintains his friendship with this man, even though he's not there. He makes sure the house is, you know, cared for. Uh, he, in the, in the end, he has a nice, you know, park 
you know, <laughs> you know a park is, is is founded or or placed in the where the house was, and it was just a um, it's just all in all, it was like a real touching friendship movie. Even though that was a real minor part of the film, that's what always stuck with me. And then it's just a fun action adventure romp from the 1960s, <laughs> which you can never miss with. <laughs> exactly. I've only seen parts of it. Um, it was one of those things that just flipping through the channels, I saw it, and um, I found myself being really pulled in. And the reason I didn't finish it was because I had to go, and I was like, I kind of want to finish. I didn't think I would like this, but like, I can't look away. Like, oh, we have to leave. Shoot. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a brilliant film. It's beautiful to look at. There's a great, there's a really good DVD release. This poor thing has not seen a Blu-ray release, and I would love to see a you know a high definition Blu-ray release of this film. I can't believe it hasn't happened, and no word. I haven't seen any word that it is going to happen. And I just I, I think it's a big mistake on uh, I think it's MGM's part um, to not do this. It's just it it is always be one of my favorite, if not my favorite time travel film. And, you know, it's just like any other time travel film. It doesn't, you know, the time travel doesn't really work, but it doesn't matter. Uh, the, the, the race of Morlocks just look like shaved, uh, ape costumes, (laughs) you know, painted blue. (laughs) It may have been, it may have been, uh, but it's still just, it's an absolute favorite of mine. It it, it is very sixties. There is some kind of, bad writing maybe as far as uh uh Yvette Mimo's character this you know the, the Eloy this beautiful woman in the future who still wonders oh how do the women wear their hair I'm like really you know you're millennia away from from us and you're you're still thinking about that but right. uh that just I, I think it, it adds to a little bit of fun right. uh, for, for me that probably just is more a reflection on the time in which the movie came out I'm actually a little surprised that there isn't like a Blu-ray release because you know, hey, old '60s sci-fi, like, we're, right, sci-fi. like, what have we been bringing back? We've been bringing back our old sci-fi lately. Like, we've been trying to get people interested in our old sci-fi. You know, Star Trek is huge right now. You know, Star Wars hasn't gone away. It started in the '70s. Like, maybe bring back the time machine. You know, just not necessarily as a remake. I know they did that remake uh, several years ago. Um, that one I did see. Um, but just just to re-release it and put it back out there, like I think. yeah, I watched the uh, the remake, and it's actually it's one of the few remakes that actually ended up in my personal collection. I actually didn't mind it. I kind of liked it. I mean, it wasn't the same story. It was a similar story and the basics, and there were some things I didn't care about it. I thought the Uber Morlock or whatever was yeah. kind of silly, but everything else about it, I. I it was fun to watch. It was fun to look at, you know, and it was an enjoyable film. Definitely. I think the thing I like about it most is it's a movie that asked itself a question, how could time travel work? And when he's like, well, I'm making a time machine to go back and stop my girlfriend's death. You can't. Cause if you do that, you don't make the time machine. So time's always going to find a way to stop you. That was the first time I was like, Whoa, <laughs> this movie's aware of itself. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So, my next movie um, is The Talented Mr. Ripley. Yes. Um, let me just pull up some quick info. Uh, 1999, starring Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jude Law. Um, also had great um, supporting cast with um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And directed by... 
Oh, I'm going to say this wrong. Anthony Minghella. Um, but what I like about it is um, it's very early in Matt Damon's career. He's playing Tom Ripley. And it's it starts off as this really simple story. Um, he's He's narrating in the beginning saying that it all started with borrowing a jacket. Um, he's, he's, he's playing piano at kind of like this, like this country club kind of setting. Um, and then the jacket he's wearing is, is a college jacket. It has the, the college logo on it. Yeah. And after he's done playing, a guy comes up to him and says, Oh, so, you know, my son went to the same school. Do you know him? And he's a natural liar. And he just is like, yes, I do. How is he? Because he's kind of lonely and he doesn't have a lot going on in his life. And he just wants to to be welcomed and accepted and and have people talk to him. And it just starts off as a simple lie. And to say it snowballs is to say the least. Because eventually he goes to meet the son who's living in Europe. And he he's he's there completely under false pretenses. And and he becomes enamored with the guy's life. And he's, he's living off of his... The guy Jude Law and he's living off his parents' money and and Tom doesn't want to leave and he wants to be his friend so he he learns he spies on the guy first and learns everything the guy loves so he learns it too and the guy likes jazz and he likes sailing and he so Tom figures all that out and then it becomes this whole thing of I don't want to leave this life I I I love the idea of this man and I want to be his friend and there's kind of some people debate like is is Tom gay is he falling in love with Jude Law's character. To me, I'm like a little bit, but it's more of he loves the idea of the character of of uh, Jude Law's character. His name is Dicky. He's he loves the idea of him and being around him because he's kind of that electric personality. If he walks in the room and everybody wants to be around him, and he's sucked into that, and then it takes this sharp turn of just a guy who's a little obsessed, a little lonely, to a guy who's now on the run from the law after committing a murder. Oh, I mean, right. total total sharp turn. You, you go from just, okay, it's kind of this creepy guy, he's a liar, and then he just buried a body. <laughs> Did not see that coming. No. Yeah. <laughs> um. And then now he's on the run, and he's a bad guy, and it's about him covering up his crime and making sure no one finds out. But the way he does that is he has to make everyone believe the guy's still alive. And so he's like kind of like country hopping all around Europe. And it's the reason I like it so much is for everyone goes through the same journey, but they hit it at different points of you're what you're just, you're just watching. And then you get interested in the character and then you see him commit this murder. And then at some point you're on his side. Because at first you're just sort of like, whoa, he's terrible. I hope he gets caught. And then at some point you're thinking, get away with it. Run. (laughs) Don't get caught. And everyone hits that point at different spots in the movie. There's no, like, defined, I'm on his side. For me, it was really late in the movie where you think he's about to get caught. And I'm just sitting there going, don't get caught. Don't get caught. Don't get caught. When did I think this? I wanted him to get caught 20 minutes ago. (laughs) Like, I don't know when that change happened. But it happened. And then it just, it comes full circle and... It's just wonderful acting. Matt Damon, I think, is in every single scene, wow. and he never lets up. And really carries it. it. Yeah, yeah, and it's I think it's over two hours long, and he just is fully engrossed. And I think it's maybe his first or second movie after Goodwill Hunting. Like that's how early in his career it was, and he he never breaks. He he's very focused. He goes to a really dark place for this character, but not because of like any kind of horrible gore or anything, but just of of 
the pressure he's built on himself and the lies he has to maintain and and that that's just always what pulls me in of you somehow you end up on his side even though he's the worst person interesting I, it's not a film i've i've never watched it i, I knew about it I, obviously i've seen it in his you know damon's filmography i remember when it came out but i never got a chance to see it i don't know if i've ever heard anything about it cuz all this comes as a great surprise to me <laughs> And, and for me, a bit of significance, it's the first movie I ever saw on DVD. Oh, wow. Before uh, we even owned a DVD player, we had to play it through our computer. And I it, that sticks with me because there were certain scenes I just watched over and over. And it's like, because of DVD, click, done, I can watch the scene. Click, done, I can watch it again. And I probably watched certain scenes 20 times just in that one renting of the disc. Yeah, now, now I'll have to look it up and watch it because yeah, that sounds... Yeah, if, if it pulled you in that hard, uh, yeah. yeah, then I'm definitely going to have to check it out. Because, yeah, I've, I, that one's gone right by me. <laughs> it's just a b- brilliant piece of acting. And it's the character that like, t- drives the plot. Every decision he makes, that's why the plot makes a turn. Interesting. All right, very cool. All right, next one I've got on here is actually it's an independent film uh, done out of uh, Denver, Colorado and its surrounding area. Uh Directed and written by uh, Jamin Winans, the film's called Ink from 2009. Uh, a mysterious creature known as Ink steals a child's soul in hopes of using it as a bargaining chip to join the Incubi, the group of supernatural beings responsible for creating nightmares. So yes, it, it, it's a movie that takes place in two worlds. It takes place uh, there's events that takes place in you know our world, the real world, and there's this other world that's sort of just outside of our world so they can interact or be in our world without us knowing that they're there. There's like uh, the storytellers that come and give us our dreams at night and the incubi that come and give us our nightmares. And there is a young girl that is, you know, kidnapped by this ink and the the storytellers are also kind of, they, they try to protect these souls from being stolen and they have to try to get her back. And then that is only half the story because it turns out that this girl and ink have a connection that isn't immediately recognized um, by either one of them. And it's up to one of the other storytellers uh, to kind of awaken this connection between them to save her soul. And it's just, it's a film that I saw. This is actually a funny story about this film is this was about the same time that, um, oh, who was it that was going after Napster? Was it? Uh, was, oh. Um, Metallica? I want to say Metallica was going after So it was, it was, it was the time of uh, a big heavy when the, the, the torrents and everything really took off. This movie was actually uh, one of the most torrented films on, like, the Pirate Bay. But the makers of the film said that that one that happened, it became the number one pirated film on Pirate Bay. It said directly after that, the sales of their DVDs spiked, went huh. went up. <laughs> That's funny. And I'll 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 admit it that I watched this online first, and then after I saw it, I was like, I've got to buy this film, and I did the same thing. I went and bought the the DVD, and I was like, okay, the last time I'm ever doing that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the DVD was, or the uh, the movie itself is for me just phenomenal it's kind of like the movie i throw in every now and again when i feel like all the hollywood stuff is just filling me up with the gunk it's like okay i need a 
palate cleanser, this is the film I use. It's just uh, the way it's shot is is, is beautiful. The, the the dream world has a sort of haze to it, and the colors are just shifted a little bit. And then it's just this great story about you know what's important in your life. Where do you put your priorities? There's so much in it, and then the the characters that run through both worlds are just interesting as all get out. And I, I can't recommend the film enough. I've loaned it to many, many people who have then gone and bought their own copies and kind of joined, as they call it, the ink army, as I think is how the producers uh, describe a, the, uh, us fans. And it is like that. We are terrible about it. We, we're probably just shy of going around knocking on people's doors saying, hi, have you heard of ink? <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of Ink, but that sounds really interesting. It's I will have to loan it to you, right. and then you will probably go and buy your own copy. <laughs> you said it came out in 2009? 2009. Was there anyone um, in it, like, significant, like any known? No, I think uh, for the most part they were uh, just small uh, actors, local actors to, to the Colorado area. Uh, many of them have gone on into other things, but mostly other independent films, nothing real major. Uh, Chris Kelly, Quinn Hunchell, and Jessica Duffy were the, the three kind of main stars in the film. Um, and Quinn uh, Hunter played the, the the young girl, and she's gone on to do some other acting. I think she's actually appeared in some television and everything too. Yeah, and she does a phenomenal job in the in the in the film. A really great young child actor. They did a great job with their casting. Yeah, but it was a great film, and it's just it's one of those. It may have been one of my first independent films, the first film that I saw that was literally paid for by how much credit do we have on our cards, kind of thing. And that was the budget. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, so next for me, um, this is one of those movies that, like I said, you know, your 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 favorite list should be fluid. This and my number one, they probably will never come off. Um, so this is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, 1975, Jack Nicholson. Um and again, it's just one of those movies that, for me, it's the character who's driving the plot, or the characters that are driving the right. plot. Um, I probably saw this 10 years ago. Um, I want to say it was it was my mom who was really insistent on me watching it, because anyone who knows me knows that I love movies, and I think she bought it for me. She goes, you're going to like this. I know you well enough to know you'll like this. So I put it on and and it's a pretty long movie. Um, and it's one of those movies that has like five fake out endings. Like you think it's about to end and then the next scene starts and then that scene fades to black real slow. And then the next scene starts and it's one of those movies I'm sitting there watching going, don't end, don't end, don't end there. <laughs> and then it doesn't and I'm really happy. And then it, it starts to fade to black on another part. And I'm thinking, and there, and there, and it doesn't end there, and it just sort of goes for another, like, 10, 15 minutes. But what I like about it is, even though Jack Nicholson is great, and even though it's about this this great story between um, a, a guy who is a, a prison inmate who convinces everyone at the prison there's something unstable about him, so he gets transferred to a psychiatric hospital, and... The nurse that runs the ward 
um, recognizes this guy's full of it, so I'm going to kind of make his life hell, and I'm never going to let up because I've got the power, and it becomes this clash between their two personalities. But what I like most about it is everyone else, all of the other patients. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's kind of like um, a, a who's who of actors you know. I mean, you have you have Christopher Lloyd, you have Danny DeVito. Um, oh, what's his name? Um, no, not him. I can't remember the actor's name. He plays, uh, he does the voice of Chucky in the Chucky movies, the doll. Um, (laughs) but he plays Billy, the, the young inmate that, that Jack Nicholson's character really takes to. And he's sort of like, um, you know, you're a young kid. What do you, you know, cause he finds out that almost every patient has checked themselves in and he didn't know that until like three-fourths of the way in the movie. And he's like, what are you guys doing here? There's nothing wrong with you. And it becomes this thing of, you think you're crazy because you're in the crazy house. And this place is not making you better. It's making you worse. And he's the only one who's kind of seeing through that. And he's 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 bringing some positivity to like their group meetings. He's like, can we watch a baseball game? And everyone's like, yeah, can we? And the nurse is like, no, you can't watch a baseball game. And he's like, why not? That would be fun. And he's like, can we go out? Can we leave? Can we have a basketball game? Let's play basketball. And you see all the, the patients, they're doing better. They're happier. He's he's do, he's having poker games. He's, um, he's just – and then when the nurse is like, you can't put on the baseball game, he starts to narrate a baseball game from his head, and everyone gets really into it. And he's like, you know, they're coming up. Oh, he just he just hit a double off the wall. Mantle's coming around third. And, like, all the guys start cheering. Nothing's on. Nothing is on the TV. He's just making it up as he goes. And there's positivity in the room for the first time since they've all been there. And it's this – to me, I like it because I'm a student of psychology, and that is how you help a person. You don't say, sit there, be quiet, take your medicine. You're going to get worse. You're going to be depressed. You, you need stimulation. You need positivity. And it takes this criminal <laughs> to bring it to them, and you're immediately on his side. Even though he's the criminal and she's the nurse, he's the good guy, she's the bad guy. And it ends in – a really dreary way, but for the movie that they had done, it was perfect. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that is a film that I'm ashamed to say I've never... Uh, you never can borrow it. <laughs> we'll sh- I'll watch <laughs> Ink, you'll watch Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. And it, it's such a quotable movie. Yeah, I've seen plenty of scenes from it. I think it's one of those movies that it, you almost have to sit there and think, wait a minute, did I? Because I've seen so many little clips and so many scenes from it. But no, I know I've I've never actually sat down and watched that all the way through. Yeah, and, and even though I couldn't think of all their names, it's, it's just filled with either actors you know or faces you recognize, right. all the other patients. And... Um, it it's based on um, a book of the same name, I believe, and it improves on it because of um, a certain twist, because of who's narrating the book, because this isn't done with a narration. Um, this twist pops up, and you're just sort of like, I didn't see that coming, because <laughs> when it happens, I just went, Are you kidding me? This whole time. <laughs> So it, it's just this great moment of even though I know it now, every time this one scene pops up, I'm just sort of like, everyone, shh, this is such a good moment. <laughs> it's like, you know it's coming. I don't care. It's still a good moment. It's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. This one, this last film that's on my list is the number one. It is, I will call it, my favorite film. I don't, you know, there's so many 
better movies out there, I know. But this is the film that I just, I absolutely just love this film. I've seen this thing hundreds of times and love it every single time. 1984's Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> I just, you can't go wrong. I just love that film. I, without a joke, without joking, I wore out a VHS tape. And I've watched the DVD more times than I can count. There was a time where I was kind of just coming home every night and throwing in the tape and watching Ghostbusters. And I did that for probably two or three weeks. I swear, it's so ridiculous. To the point where I'd be at work and I'd be quoting the lines (laughs) the entire film from beginning to end. There is just something about that movie where it's just the right right writers, the right actors, the right story. Um, The fun special effects. Everything comes together in this film. And it just, it was magic. And I haven't seen the remake yet. I've heard some good reviews from it. So, I i mean, I'll watch it, but I haven't seen it yet. I did see Ghostbusters 2 and didn't care for it at all. Um, so I just, Not even I, the courtroom scene? Not, not even the courtroom scene. I love really, that scene. Maybe, Everything maybe after that. You know, honestly, I saw that. I've seen that film twice, I'm going to say. I saw it when it came out, and I saw it once more to just go, okay, well, maybe I was just in a bad mood. I'll watch it again, and I still didn't like it. Okay. So I've seen that one twice compared to the literally hundreds, hundreds. of times that I've seen <laughs> Ghostbusters. Yeah, that courtroom scene, that's the one where I'm like, this is a great moment, kind of surrounded by mediocrity. But the first one, a lot of people disagree with me on this, because a lot of people talk about Ghostbusters not only as their favorite movie, but also as like their favorite comedy. And I always say, Ghostbusters, though, what makes it so good, it's not a comedy. It's a brilliant sci-fi that just happens to be funny. Exactly, yeah. And I think a lot of people miss that. And when they remade it with the one that came out this year, that's a comedy. And I went and saw it. And it's actually quite good. It's not great. It's not brilliant. It's not the original. And it's not trying to be. It's trying to be a modern comedy. And for that, it's quite good. Um, the, The Kate McKinnon character... She's right there with Bill Murray in terms of a good character, a good Ghostbuster. Uh, She plays Holtzman. So for her alone, I would say go see it, (laughs) especially in theaters, because there are a few scenes where you're like, that was done really well. Um, But for the original, there's no bad scene in that movie. Not one for how it's shot, for how it's lit, for how they act. And like you said, it's just this perfect coming together of the right actors, the right writing, the right story, the right everything. It, to me, it's more of an accident that worked than an intentional plan. Yeah, it's just like you're saying that just every scene, even the one scene, you know, there's scenes that almost don't work. You think you think, oh, my gosh, that. There was the scene where uh, Dana Barrett first shows up to Ghostbusters. Sigourney Weaver's character first shows up, and she's like, "Yeah, this is the ghost office, right? Ghostbusters office, right?" And Bill Murray goes jumping over, and he almost trips. I've always noticed that. Like, wow, he almost ate it. <laughs> he, he almost ate it, and that. But it makes that scene work that much better. Yeah. I, for, I think that makes that scene better. Yeah, it, it actually takes away a little bit of the funny. And puts it into the, this happened. Yeah. And it just it makes in. it better. Yeah, it keeps it in the reality. Yeah, and um, another scene, like, it, it's also one of those movies that if you were to describe it to a person, they would say, that sounds really bad. Like, no, no, <laughs> yeah. s- just watch it. Because it's, it's hard to imagine. There are many people who've never seen it. And I don't understand that. Like, oh, it's just some 
some weird 80 sci-fi. It's like, no, it's it's kind of the gold star standard for any sci-fi, let alone. I mean, the, it also could only have happened in the 80s. It was it, it's just part of that perfect accident of of when it in the mid 80s. Yes, right. Yeah. Exactly. That that to me, like 83 to 86, 87 movies weren't better. But that's that's it. That's that is always that will always be at the top of my list. Yeah. If someone says favorite movie, you're stuck on an island and you've only got one movie. It's going to be Ghostbusters. <laughs> that's a good one to have with you. Um, so for me, number one, and it's funny because I, I look over this list and I go, I have a really somber list. <laughs> I love all kinds of movies, but um, this is the one that I don't think will ever come out of first place. Um, even though I work with, with kids and families, when they ask me, I say, Back to the Future. Because I think that's a safer answer to give. And for a long time it was. But it's, it's, only, on, it's only an honorable mention now. So, But if you ask me, adult to adult, it's A Clockwork Orange. Wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's a, yeah, a little Very dark and heavy movie. film. Yes. Yeah. I can't really say that to a 10-year-old kid. No, 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 no. You What's should go look about. Yeah. No. Go see if go see if that's on your dad's shelf and watch it. Yeah. Is that about learning about time? No. <laughs> um I want to say 1975. Sounds right. I don't know the exact 1971. Year. 71. Okay, there okay. you go. Stanley Kubrick. Um not just my favorite movie, it's my favorite Kubrick movie. Um and even though people um absolutely love him for me as a director, he was very hit or miss. I actually don't like 2001 A Space Odyssey. I get a lot of flack for that. Um, I've watched it twice. Didn't care for it twice. Just didn't pull me in. But this movie, if I'm stuck on an island... Yeah, this is the one? Not only that, I could watch just certain scenes forever. The I mean, because every, every single scene, I believe, is it's either um, a static shot or the camera's on, on like the trolley. And mm-hmm. it's just rolling. So it's never a handheld camera. So it's always very still, very rigid, and he frames everything up. He centers everything up. I always say, like, certain scenes, you could just print it out and sell it as a work of art. Mm-hmm. And I watched, I have it on Blu-ray, and I watched this great, it was the commentary. And um, Malcolm McDowell, who plays the main character, provides one part of the commentary. Oh, nice. Good. And I can't remember the other guy, but he was um, he's a huge... Um, uh, I don't remember his name, but he's just um, just uh, like a movie critic mm-hmm. and um, like a, a cinema historian. So he had a lot to say. So you're getting the insight of the guy who was there to the insight of the guy who understands the time period. And they were talking about every single scene in the movie has no lighting, no stage lighting. All of the light comes from on the scene. Mm-hmm. So Kubrick went out and had all of these industrial lights bought to light the whole set so if there's a lamp the lamp is like bright white because that's what's lighting everything or there's just like a lamp overhead bright white or or there's just some glowing ball that's like right. a, just like a, a floor lamp and that's what's lighting it. and it plays to it it plays to this kind of surreal feeling of just like the lighting feels off like it feels like they should be like shielding themselves from this bright ball of light but it's brightening everything up that much more. Mm-hmm. And so you don't, so you just get really all of these strong contrasts. Cause if he's, st- if the lights here and he's standing to the side of it, you've got a big shadow to the side and you just get all of this imagery. 
but then it's just also all of the stuff that Malcolm McDowell made up. Um, like he, he created, like the character is Alex Delarge in the book. There is no last name. He mm-hmm. made it up. And, and Kubrick <laughs> said, why did you give him a last name? He goes, well, Delarge, you know, the large, <laughs> I'm huge. I'm bigger than life. Um, the, are you familiar? Have you seen it? I've seen, it's another one of those films where I have seen some, Parts but yes. So, little graphic. There, yes. There's, there's this. That's probably actually what, because the, the darker elements of it are probably why I've never bothered to actually sit down and, and watch it all the way through. Right. I think I started to once, and it started getting into some weird areas yeah. where, at the time, at the age I was, I was like, I, yeah, no. And I, that. Yeah, I'm going to stop away. that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then I never went back to it. Right. And so there's a really graphic scene where they attack mm-hmm. and they, they rape a woman. But the character, he starts singing, singing in the rain. Right. Not in the book. And it was a, it was Kubrick's decision kind of last minute. He's like, I really want to make this a bizarre scene. And he goes, he goes, Malcolm, do you know how to sing and dance? He goes, sing and dance. I'm singing in the rain. And he just did it. And please remind me of the actor that was in Singing in the Rain. Oh, Gene my goodness. Kelly. Gene Kelly. Thank okay. you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Malcolm McDowell tells a story of years later. He's at like some big Hollywood party. He's there. Gene Kelly's there. He's a huge fan of Gene Kelly. And he they see each other. They make eye contact. And Malcolm McDowell goes to shake his hand. And Gene Kelly turns and walks away. Oh. He's mad <laughs> of what he did to, to his the song. song. And he starts shouting out, it was homage. I'm a huge fan. And he never looked back. And he oh. goes, that's the only time I met Gene Kelly. <laughs> and my heart was broken. So you take risks with things like that. But what I love most about the movie is just prior to that scene, coming up to that scene, they go, they, they're, they're, it's Malcolm McDowell's character and his three friends, and they stole a car, and they're driving up to the house. And the house has this sign out front that's well, again, it's the only light, because it's like, it's a sign that has a light behind it, and it just says, home. And it's this static shot, home. And that's how you know they're coming up to this house. It's like 45 minutes later into the movie, the character finds himself rehabilitated and he's coming back up to the same house because he's just been attacked. So he's bruised, he's hurt, and he doesn't realize where he's going and it's raining. And they just show you that shot, home. And you, the viewer, even though you only saw it for like three seconds, 45 minutes, maybe an hour earlier in the movie, you instantly remember it. And you're like, oh no, he's going back to the scene of his crime. There, what's going to happen to him? Because you instantly remember it because Kubrick did a great job of that visual memory of, of just making sure these moments stand out to you, even though he only showed it to you for a few seconds. And when he comes back to it, you instantly remember what that is, why it's important, and why it's going to stick with you. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I think it was just, like I said, it was a film that I tried to watch and I was, it, I just, I wasn't ready for it. I was a lot younger and it didn't get my attention and what did get my attention I wasn't comfortable with. <laughs> so I, I walked away from it and then I just never bothered to uh, go back into it. Um, I did actually listen to a, a, a podcast recently where they went through the whole, they, they, they discussed the film and went through the whole synopsis. And, and it's funny that you mentioned that the Sing in the Rain was made up because that ends up, 
playing a very important Huge role part. Uh, further down the film. So here's this thing that they thought of at the end. So so much of that film was just off the cuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I, I I listened to that commentary all the way through, and and Malcolm McDowell just kept talking about how like that was his relationship with Stanley Kubrick. Like they would come up with things, they would they would figure things out like day of on the set or a few days before. But because of the personality, of, like Kubrick and McDowell, McDowell considered each other best of friends. But when the movie finished, because of the kind of person that Kubrick was and the kind of a shut-in that he was, once the movie was done and filmed and was out and was just, that's it, they never talked again. Not because of, of any kind of rivalry or hatred, just because that's just... The they, were, of, they were done. They right. Were, yeah. And it's kind of sad because, like McDowell always said, I still consider him one of the best friends I've ever had. And it's like, that would have been a great relationship, the movies they could have made together. Mm. Because to me, McDowell is not a leading man. But that movie, he was perfect. You could have put him in 20 more movies along that, those lines, and he, he probably would have like taken like a horror and a thriller element to that, the next level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Malcolm McDowell is a really great character actor. Yeah. Not someone that you can really see carrying a film unless it's a very particular kind of film. Right. Like something like A Clockwork Orange, where you need that sort of just off from center kind of personality yeah. that he that he can project. Yeah. And and it follows the book in terms of like tone and everything, but like there you know, in, in the in the book, the character of Alex is just like making up words. But if you pay attention, he's making sense. And in the movie, Malcolm McDowell like <clears throat> takes it a step further, and he does it a little bit more. He makes up made up even more made up words. Like he takes some of the made up words and he adds to them. And again, if you're listening to him, you're like, I know exactly what you're saying, even though it's kind of gibberish. Right. And it's just that's just one of the many elements of the movie that I never grow tired of. Yeah, fantastic. So that, that that finishes out your top five, yes. Yes, that is my top five. You have a couple honorable mentions. I didn't. I actually thought about that. It was like last minute things. Like, oh, I wonder if I should have like made some honorable mentions. So, well, we'll we'll hear yours. We'll, I wonder how many might uh, might fall on mine. I thought of a couple while we're sitting here discussing that yeah. I would consider honorable mentions. So, and even my honorable mentions list, I had to knock some off <laughs> just for time because I could probably come up with a hundred movies. Um, so for me, uh, Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I would consider that one too. Yeah, yeah that would definitely be a, a on a list. Yeah, um, The Departed. Okay, no, I've never um, seen that. It's funny because uh, Martin Scorsese is my favorite director, and yet none of his movies are on my top. Oh, five. that's funny. Um, the Departed was in consideration. Um, it's my favorite Scorsese movie. Um, I've never, I haven't seen all of his movies, but every movie I have seen, I've loved. Yes, uh, Fight Club. David Fincher, um, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade. Oh, that good one, good choice. People. Yeah, yeah, um, I like that one. Even though Raiders of the Lost Ark is the classic movie, I think Last Crusade is just a hair better because of the relationship with Sean Connery. Um, um, a lesser-known movie, Perfume: The Story of a Murderer. It, it rings a familiarity, but I definitely have never. Um, it's this great movie about a guy with. Um, uh, like a super level sense of smell but because you can't convey smell in a movie they overcompensate with imagery oh okay so it's beautiful um black swan um which i I will totally plug my mother's cousin co-wrote that movie oh interesting yes um which doesn't surprise me because it it too goes to like this dark place so i guess it runs in the family (laughs) um memento 
Um, I still think that is Christopher Nolan's best movie, um, which is sad to say because it's his first movie. But I, I wish he kind of would pull away from, well, $300 million budget and I'm going to make a movie. It's like, can you go back to like can you do the million dollar do budget? the art house kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, because that was your really great work. Like, I still like, I, I enjoy The Dark Knight. I enjoy Interstellar. But Memento is so wonderful. And you get to the end and you're like, no, this is not what I saw coming. Um, Misery. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, I haven't thought of that one That's in a one of my favorite horror movies. That's a scary movie. That it's is a scary, really scary film. Because it can happen. Mm-hmm. And those are always my favorite horror movies. Yes. This could happen yes. to me this at any time. This wasn't uh, Camp Crystal Lake and some right. mysterious hockey mask wheeling, exactly. you know, psycho that can't be killed. No, this, this is, is just, this is a crazy woman. Right. right. Who just lives up the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um... And I actually just rewatched it um, like a couple months ago with a bunch of people who had never seen it. And that part where she grabs the block. Oh, puts it, and it's they, called hobbling. They, right. It's, it's called so, hobbling. And so, they, they looked at me and they were like, what's about to happen? I go, just watch. And they go, no, what's about to happen? I go, just watch. And she pulls up the sledgehammer and they're like, what's about to happen? I go, you know it's about to happen. Recent movie, uh, Whiplash. Oh, interesting. Have you seen that? I did. Yeah. I really like that. Um, That's the... Um, the drumming movie. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. Um, J.K. Simmons and um, Miles Teller. Um, to me, I always got like this strong kind of Kubrick vibe from it, just in terms of the, the way it was shot, the angles, the lighting, the intensity. Um, I, I love it for its intensity. There's certain scenes I've just watched over and over and over again. That was a film. I, I appreciate the, the acting that was yeah. in it. Um fantastic acting uh i think overall i didn't really care for it i didn't care for the story i mean the moral of the story is be a complete dick yeah. and people will want to like you yeah and i'm like what what kind of lesson is this right. you and, know that's what it really boils down to this right. this guy at no point redeems himself at no. all he continues and he just takes it to the next level yep. oh you think i was a dick i'm gonna take it to the next level. exactly and then the guy just in this damaged soul just once, just okay. I'll try that much harder. I'm like what? <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, it's a terrible life lesson. Yeah. Um, but it was when when it ended, and he it end it ends on the climax, which is a really rare thing to see in a movie. And he does the drum solo, and that's it. The solo's over. The song's over. The movie's over. And I remember thinking like, oh, that was pretty cool. He did it. He he finally proved himself to the guy. And then the movie just kept processing in my head. And a week later, I went. That is the saddest ending ever because he's never going to stop. He's going to push people away forever. Like this character is going on to be doomed. And then it was a couple months after that, that Miles Teller gave the interview and he said pretty much the same thing. He goes, Oh, I think the character is going to be miserable the rest of his life and he's going to die of a drug overdose in his thirties. And I was like, yeah, that's probably what's going to happen if this was a real person. Um, couple more. Um, another recent Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, because, I mean, I never watched any of the previous Mad Max movies, so it was never something... I didn't go to that because I was like, oh, I like the franchise. I just never got around to seeing them. Um, And then I saw the trailers, and I was like, that looks dumb. And then I saw another trailer, I was like, looks okay. And then I saw the third trailer, I was like, I gotta see this. It was a great action flick. It was a really great action flick. Uh, Some really stunning uh, practical stunt effects, which is nice to see Mm -hmm. uh, in today's film and everything. Um, Again, I... I actually found myself 
usually I don't like it when too much stuff is spoon fed to the audience. You know, I don't necessarily want explanations about everything that I see. The world they actually created, I actually wanted to know more yeah. about, and I felt like I was missing out mm-hmm. because, you know, wait a minute, you just this was just in this, these people were in the background, and you just panned by them. What is that? What what drove us to this? You know, that's and I felt like that that really actually detracted from the film for me because for oddly enough because I was like I wanted some information and yeah. I didn't get it. I had the opposite feeling of it added to the movie for me because it it to me there's you learn so much with very little dialogue. Most of the dialogue is get down, we're going to shoot. <laughs> like and then 20 minutes later, we'll have a conversation for 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. Max has, what, like 10 lines in the if entire I, film? Yeah. <laughs> and yet I feel I've learned a lot about him. Um, just through the journey they're on, I feel I learned so much about Furiosa. I feel I learned a lot about Immortan Joe, all because of this battle they're having, because of the decisions they make, because of what they ultimately decide is right and wrong. And it's just like, you know, this is a good person who's struggling. You know, this is a bad person who's bearing down their neck. And it's like this, this long music video in a way. And it's like, all right, we're going to drive this way for an hour. All right, we're going to drive back Back that way way. for an hour. (laughs) I think it's a film that I'm going to have to sit down and watch again um, and try to turn off um, maybe some of the baggage I made of brought to it because i have seen the other films okay and I, while i'm not saying that i necessarily like the other films um it's been a long time since i've watched them so i can't honestly say whether i do or not i, I remember enjoying the first mad max and then the ones after that i i honestly don't know if i would say i liked or not but i'm going to this mad max expecting you know is this a, a sequel is this a you know is this a read launch is you know and and it was neither. I don't know if right. it was either one. Right. It was literally just a whole new story. Right. And I think maybe I just have a hard time sometimes turning off. Mm-hmm. If I'm looking for one particular thing, I, I sometimes I have a hard time turning that off and just enjoying what's happening. So I think actually knowing more about it now, I could, might want to w- watch it again and see if I had, I, you know, get a little bit more enjoyment out of it. Yeah, and there's a lot of really good... Um theories that like fans have come up with and it makes me want to go back and now see the original ones just so i can kind of fully understand what people are talking about because people are like oh you remember that one kid from the movie that's who max really is it's it's not the mel gibson character that he grew up and that's who it is i'm like oh i wish i knew what you were talking about (laughs) that sounds kind of cool um yeah i don't really know if it's it's if it's if it's a reboot or if it's a sequel or if it's a side story like it's just it just is it's its own self-contained thing don't worry about it um Last two on my honorable mention I mentioned already, Aladdin, um, favorite Disney movie. And I think the reason for that is how different it was. Um, Robin Williams always said it was a Warner Brothers movie in Disney drag. And I agree with him. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's also the fact that you, you remember the genie. And for most people, genie is their favorite part. And yet he doesn't show up till pretty far into the movie. And he's just a plot device. He's not the main character. He's not the title character. He's not even really a sidekick. He's just sort of this plot device who's brilliant because he's so funny. But the other reason I like it is they don't kill the villain. A lot of other Disney movies, the villain dies. You know, Scar dies in Lion King. Maleficent is killed. 
Um, they all slip off the cliff. Right. Through no. no fault, not necessarily through any fault of our hero. Right. But yeah, they... Right. What we kill off in this, it's established very early on that Aladdin is a con man and a thief. And he's not going to win in a fist fight. He's not going to win in a sword fight. He's not going to... De- he wouldn't be able to defeat Jafar before Jafar got the powers of a genie. Before he got his own magic enhanced, he wouldn't have won. But he can trick him. And it's established really early in the movie, and it's trickled throughout the movie. He can trick people, and that's how he wins. He doesn't have this big duel. He's just sort of like, hey, you know what? (laughs) And he gets in his head, and Jafar's like, you're right. I I am not more powerful than genie. I wish to be a genie. It's like, cool, you're trapped now. I won. It's like Disney's not really done that since. A lot of movies don't do that. Like, I'm not always a fan of killing the villain. I'm a fan of trap the villain. And brains him. over brawn. Yeah. yeah. And it, it does that really well. It's not just this moment of, oh, he tricked him. It's like, no, no, no. We established very early on that he's capable of doing that to people, and he just does it again. Um, so that's why that always sticks out to me. That and the brilliance of Robin Williams yeah. to the genie. Um, and do you know the story of how he got picked? No, I don't think genie? so. I don't think I've heard it. So the, the, the animators always had him in mind, and to pitch the idea to him, um, I don't know if it was the director, I can't remember who it was, but they went and found one of his stand-up albums and they drew the genie to it. So every time like he went into a character in the stand-up routine, that was the drawing. And they showed it to him and he was cracking up <laughs> over his own material because of how it was drawn. And he went, I'm on board. That's awesome. Um, so my last movie, maybe a movie I find is a better horror movie than Misery for me. Is Psycho? Wow, the yeah. uh, original Psycho, the original, yeah. yeah, not that Shop yeah. Shop, <laughs> yeah, okay, and none of the sequels. <laughs> yeah, the original Psycho, nineteen sixty. That Anthony is Perkins. yes, yeah, that is a a, a brilliant film. Yeah. That, that's that's one of those films where everything comes together in yes. just the right way, and it and it takes those turns you don't expect. Oh, right. here's our here's our star of the film, and here she is, and then you know what? Thirty minutes in, she's dead. She's dead. Wait, what? It's something you couldn't do now. It's like, all right, we're gonna get, uh, we're gonna get, you know, Anne Hathaway, big star. She's gonna be on the poster. You're gonna see her in all the trailers. But what you don't know, halfway through the movie, she's gonna die. Is she gonna come back as a ghost? No, she's just gonna be, you know, thrown in a swamp, and that's it. No one would go see that. But that was, you know, Hitchcock made sure no one knew that was happening. He had that rule of you can't come in late. He made sure all the theaters followed that that rule, and it terrified people <laughs> of like what like I think people were just overwhelmed with that sense of vulnerability. Yeah, and it was great, and it just it's another one of those films too where it's not the supernatural villain, right? You know, that's what makes it scary. It's real life. Yeah. It is someone that has just gone around the bend. Yeah, and this could be that weird house that's down the road yep. you, know, you don't know what's going on inside there yeah. you don't know if mother's still there <laughs> right and it's also to the point of you don't realize till the very end it's him right. you know you, you meet him for the first time you're like oh, he's a nice guy you know he took her in from the rain he gave her a towel he made her a sandwich they're talking you know he, oh he, you know he does taxidermy he's got a bunch of nice birds around and then there's that scene in the back parlor where where um uh, Marion Crane is like, you know, can't you put your mother somewhere? And like, he like glares at her and he glosses over and they, sh- they, sh- 
angle it a little different. The lighting's a little different. He's like, what do you mean put her someplace? Yeah, you mean one of those homes. And you're just sort of like, dude, back off. What's right. wrong? Right? <laughs> yeah. What happened? And that's when, like, Hitchcock turns it on of just, like, she's not safe. And, you know, and then you see him spying at her and you're like, she's really not safe. And it just gets worse. Um, but the reason that is always among my favorites is because the first time I saw it was the very first time I spent the night alone. I think I was like 14 and my parents had to go somewhere. I think my dad was away and my mom had to go somewhere unexpectedly. And so I had to stay home alone the whole night through the night. And I watched it. It came on one of the movie channels, so it was unedited, no commercials. And then I had to go take a shower because <laughs> it was late at night. And at no point in time did I think Norman Bates is going to run in here and kill me. But I couldn't shake the feeling of if something happens to me, they're not going to find me until tomorrow. Right. Like I'm alone. Like, I could slip. I could fall down the stairs. Like, something bad could happen. Like, she was alone. No one's going to know about it. I'm alone. No one's going to know. And I couldn't shake that feeling. And I just had, like, this back-of-my-mind anxiety through the rest of the night. And so, probably not a good decision to watch that movie. But yeah, that, yeah I don't know stuck, if that would be the, the one me. to do. <laughs> what, you know, a film I didn't think of, until you mentioned Psycho, and I don't know why it didn't come to my, uh, come to my brain... Speaking of horror films, it was classic horror films. 1963's The Haunting. Yes. Oh, just phenomenal, frightening film. Yeah. Again, is there something super... That's, that's one of where yeah. the, the, there's a big question mark through that entire film. Is this supernatural? Is there a ghost? Is there a haunting? You know, what is going on? You never see... Everything is done through the camera angles, through yep. the sights, through sounds. And it's all done, and it's just... It's a glorious black and white. Mm -hmm. It is the probably the crispest. I mean, it's black and it's white. white. Everything. It's just. It's so crisp. You feel like you could cut yourself on yeah. that film. And there are some incredible. Um, uh, the dir directing of it, Robert Wise, you know, who was, I, I think he may be one of my favorite directors just because of the breadth of work that he's that he did. Uh, you know, he did The Haunting. He did, um, oh, another phenomenal uh, science fiction film, um, The Day of the Earth Stood Still. But okay. then, then he goes on and he does, um, I think it was also the, the, I think Sound and Music was him. Wow, really? That's pretty uh, It was either Sound and Music, yeah, it was either Sound and Music or, um, yeah, Sound and Music and West Side Story. Wow. And then... Flash forward to uh, 1979, he does Star Trek The Motion Picture. Wow. And then he also did a couple, uh, like, oh, what was it? It was uh, like a Roman, like Samson, and or not Samson, um, Cleopatra, I think, okay. is another one. So he has this really wide, just there was no pigeonhole that, oh, that's a Robert Wise film. He did all these different kinds of films. And so I, he brings a certain something to every one of his films and the haunting i think just there's so much stuff that is on display uh there was one particular shot with this character where a lot of the dialogue is just her thinking to herself just in her monologue and there's a scene she's with other people but she kind of steps away and the camera the rest of the scene goes black as she's as her monologue starts and you get this impression we just went inside her head 
You know, I mean, this is this is her thinking. We are now inside her head while yeah. she's having this monologue, and it's just it's a film that will send shivers down your spine because you don't know what's going on. It's a great ghost story without ever seeing a ghost. Yeah, and that to me would. I've only seen parts of it. I love the parts that I saw. Um, that to me is how you do a ghost movie. You net like. Is this house haunted or is it just an old house that's falling down and you hear all the, the squeaks and the creaks and everyone's reacting and you're just sort of like, I've kind of had those moments in my house. Where <laughs> yeah. You're like, is someone here? Oh, no, it was the dog. Like, I forgot the dog was here. <laughs> like, You can relate to it instantly. Actually, kind of surprised that I didn't put it you in my to top five. List I have to do redo my list. Yeah. <laughs> See, that always changes. I think a few others that I would put on as honorable mentions. One you mentioned, the Back to the Future, just yeah. because – that's one of those films again. Same, the right, right time. Yes. You know, in that mid eighty period, mm-hmm. um, just lightning, just everything comes together. Yeah. And and it's funny. There was so much about that movie where it was going to be a completely different movie. You had a different yeah. star. You Eric had two Stoltz. different stars. You had Eric Stoltz and you had a, a, an actress. It was a different actress that was going to play uh, the girlfriend too. But then when they switched to Mike, you know, to Michael J. Fox, they they switched her because you know there was too much difference in height or something. Oh, I don't really? remember. Yeah, it was something crazy. And so it, it was this film that could have been just a completely different film. And you wonder, you know, would it have been this touchstone film that everyone, probably you know, not. probably not. Yeah. And they filmed a lot of that movie with Eric Stoltz. Like they didn't do like a couple of weeks. Like I've seen shots. I'm like, they did that scene. Like they did the, yeah, there's full scene. scenes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They did the diner. When he's seeing his dad, they did when he's waking up in his mom's bedroom. Like, right. this is a lot of the movie. Yeah, this wasn't test footage stuff. I right. mean, they actually started filming it. Yeah. Um, and do you know the story, how they came to Michael J. Fox? I, I know I've heard it. Um, they wanted him originally. Right, right. They but he was like, he's our tied guy. in with other... Right, yeah. he was still doing family ties. So they didn't even approach him. They were like, he's too busy. He won't be able to film that and do this. And and when he heard that, you know, they were doing this movie, he was like, oh, that's something I'd like to go out for. So he wanted to do it. They wanted him. Nobody asked the other side. And so they they cast Eric Stoltz, and they were like, he's good. He's just not our Marty. He's just not bringing to this, you know, he, he can do so many things, but he's just not able to do this. And so they were like, let's just go ask Michael and see what he says. And he instantly said yes. And he'd film Family Ties early in the morning, and then immediately go and film Back to the Future and never slept. <laughs> he was exhausted by the time it was done. Another film that I would mention, being a big Star Trek fan, of course there's lots of films to choose from. Uh, Robert Wise, the director's cut of the motion picture, I'd actually, I'll, I'll defend um, the director's cut, not the theatrical cut. If you actually watch the go to the DVD and get the uh, director's cut that they actually finished off all the effects that they never got around to before they put it in the theaters and everything, I think it's a really good Star Trek story. But the one that I think I would put as being a favorite is The Undiscovered Country, which is the last of the full classic uh, cast films uh, before they went and started introducing Next Gen and the films uh, with Generations, which I thought was terrible um (laughs) undiscovered country i thought was just a really fun great star trek film and i think i definitely put that high on 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 any list just because i enjoyed it it was just a little bit of everything you want it was that great interplay between the original you know between spock and mccoy and kirk and and uh you know adventure 
and you know over the over the top stuff and then but you still had you know you had your spaceships flying and right. you, know, you had the Klingons and it was everything that you really wanted in a Star Trek film all kind of encapsulated into one movie. Yeah, unfortunately, I have not watched a single thing Star Trek. Ever. Wow, really? Yeah. Um, it's not a dislike. I can't dislike it because I don't know. I, I know about it, but I I can't judge it one way or the other. I've never seen it. I grew up a Star Wars fan. We can throw that as an honorable mention. Anything you want? Yeah, to say, Star yeah, Wars. sure. Star Wars. Yeah. Um, and it's not like a rivalry of like, oh, I'm I'm in a Star Wars, not Trek. Like, there's so much crossover. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but it's just one of those things that I never got around to, to watching. Um, and I guess when I finally realized I should watch it, I'm like, I don't know where to start. So I'm not even going to bother. And that, that's just where I am. Yeah. Um, people say, well, just watch the new movies. I probably will start there and just kind of work it backwards. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've not seen the latest. The Star Trek Beyond is, uh, you know, it, again, it's getting great reviews and there's everyone saying that, oh, this is what they should have been from the beginning and all that. And I'm thinking, yeah, well, I remember people saying really great things about the first, you know, the 09 Star Trek or whatever it was. I don't think it was 09. That was too long ago. Maybe it was. I don't remember now. I feel like there was a break between... I think there was a pretty significant break between, like, as far as movies go, between 1 and 2, and then even 2 and 3. Because I, I feel like they almost didn't make 3 because of the poor reception of that second movie. I didn't care for the second film at all, and the only one I like least is the one that came before it. So as far as the new Star Trek films, I'm not a, not a fan. Okay. I'm a classic Star Trek kind of kind of person. Um, I'm trying to, you know, like I said, I did, I really should have come up with an actual more of a list of honorable mentions. Uh, you've, you've mentioned some great films, uh, and I know that we're probably going to get done recording and I'm going to go, oh, I should have talked about that one. <laughs> Part two. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I think, I think that's done it. We, we've definitely have filled this hour and, uh, I think we'll leave it at that. So, yeah, it's really interesting. I'm glad we came with um, – I'm glad that a couple things fell on both lists. And yeah. I'm glad we both came up with some stuff that neither one of us had either not heard of or, you know, never seen or anything. I think that's interesting. It'll definitely send us on our way. Uh, I'm going to go check out Inc. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Please do. Go, go check out the trailer. Uh, see if the tra- Watch the trailer and see if that doesn't pull you in. Uh, but I think that's going to do it. I'd love to hear from any listeners if you want to uh, mention, say, dude, were any of your films on our list, or did you have a list of your own, or any that you, you think would be uh, you know, worthy of someone's top five list, you can send emails to uh, timeshifterspodcast at gmail.com or join us on Facebook. And until we talk to you next time, thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you later. See ya.